Today's guest is Father Patrick Daly. Uh, which church are you from? I'm from St. Peter and Paul's Catholic Church in the middle of Wolverhampton. That's just behind the Civic Centre. Correct. Overshadowed a little bit by the Civic Centre Overshadowed. Now. Well, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's one of the more historic monuments in Wolverhampton, actually. And in the new topography or layout of the city, part of its original if your uniqueness uh, is somewhat obscured because originally North Street was one of the main arteries of the city and the house in which I live called Gifford House, a rather splendid early Georgian pile, uh, was designed to conceal the chapel behind it. And the Catholic priest lived there from the early 18th century and in that particular century, under the reigns of the early Georges, the Catholic faith was prescribed in much of the United Kingdom. And, in fact, it was against the law. So you're the chaplain or whatever, what, what's the name for at St Edmund's Primary, uh, Secondary School, yes? Yes, I'm also... It's one not of chaplain, the is it? What's well, the yes, it is. In fact, chaplain is the word to use. St Edmund's is a large Catholic secondary school with about 800 pupils on roll, aged from between 12 to 18. There's a sixth form, and I have been there for the past year as the chaplain. In other words, as the provider of religious services as the presence, if you like, of the institutional church in what is a Catholic institution. Uh, my principal role there is to celebrate Mass for the students and staff, but also I would sincerely hope also to be uh, a reasonably inspiring and uplifting presence in the community as a whole. And so do most of the children who go to St Edmund's go to your church? No, in fact, relatively few of them would. First of all, the rate of religious practice among youngsters these days is not as high as perhaps the church might wish. But St Edmund's draws from many of the parishes of Wolverhampton, including indeed my own, including a number of children who've been to the Gifford School, which is our primary school, go on there for their secondary education to St Edmund's. Its catchment area is particularly large, covering most of the urban area of Wolverhampton and uh, many of the children are in fact Catholic from Catholic families and backgrounds. So this this is a bizarre question but as a, as a priest what do you do for those of us who aren't Catholics? Well and... yes uh, many people think that I only work on Sundays and uh, <clears throat> I do work on Sundays yes but other days of the week much of the work of a priest is discreet it's hidden and because it is one-to-one -one with a lot of people, many of them at home, many of them going through difficult passages in life, it doesn't reach the headlines. But if I outline a, a typical day to you, it might give you an idea. So every day of the week, bar Thursday, which is my day off, I celebrate a public mass in St. Peter and Paul's Church. Usually that's at 12 noon to enable people who are shopping in town, particularly perhaps somewhat older people who come thanks to the on their bus passes to attend Mass. So the day around the hour or so when Mass is being celebrated is spent doing administrative work on the parish, preparing a parish bulletin, answering correspondence, paying bills, counting the money that comes in at the weekends. And then I do have a fairly long sick list because many of my parishioners are elderly, are ill, are housebound or maybe 
in fact, in retirement homes scattered over the central Wolverhampton area. And so I endeavour to visit as many of them as I possibly can each week. So that does take quite a bit of time. And then there are funerals to arrange. There are sometimes weddings to arrange, although they're rarer these days. And there are other activities. For example, in Lenten Advent, we have a parish course of adult uh, Christian education, which needs to be prepared and uh, executed. And the day gets filled up really very, very easily with answering the phone, with callers coming to the door, with people to visit, and, of course, with our Mass every day. And then I do spend uh, one full morning a week at St. Edmund's. I visit the Gifford School every week, sometimes say Mass for the children. And so the list goes on, really. One is never at a loss for work to do. So I was, <coughs> I was interested, you said that there's less weddings. There are fewer weddings, uh, um, partly because the birth rate is going down slightly. The baby boomers are all well and truly married. And many people, of course, are now preferring to live together initially. And they find that such a comfortable arrangement that they decide not to tie the knot legally. <laughs> which, which one presumes is a bit of a disappointment to both the Catholic Church and... Well, it is a slight disappointment because of its perhaps quite serious repercussions for society. I'm not making a moral judgment on it. I'm just reporting to you a state of fact. I would say that those who do come and ask to be married sacramentally in the church are very committed to one another. And the preparation for marriage is long and serious. They've thought over it for a long time. But I'm I'm not sufficient of a sociologist to comment on whether uh, the widespread cohabitation is a contributory factor to what I think any serious commentator, regardless of his ideological persuasion, would say is a difficult situation for contemporary marriage as we understand it. But would you think it's a bit better, uh, more more effective, that the people who often do now get married in church, particularly in a kind of religious ceremony, yes. are committed to that religion, whereas often in the past... like. I think all of my brothers got married in the church, mm. but all of them have no faith or belief in Christianity whatsoever, but all of them got married in church. Mm. And, and isn't it better? Well, first of all, have their marriages stuck? Uh, some have, some haven't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 50-50, I'd go. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would say it raises a wider issue about the place of religion in society and the ideas which people have about the global package of religious belief and how it impacts on their lives. I think it is more a sociological question than one in which I can really answer very successfully. I do believe that people who are committed to a religious faith and practice, people whose worldview is shaped by their religious belief, whether that be Christian or, or not, as the case may be, are generally more equipped to deal with the challenges of modern living than perhaps those who are agnostic. Mm -hmm. But that is a sweeping statement, and many of my friends are not formal religious believers, uh, although they are very supportive of my involvement in the life of the church, particularly as I am a priest and a minister of the gospel. Mm -hmm. but we'll come back to that a bit later on, actually, because I'm interested in that. But tell us a bit about yourself, because obviously you're not from Wolverhampton. I can guess that from the accent. No, I, I'm not a native of Wolverhampton, <laughs> although the people of this town have very, very much made me one of their own. I, I, I feel very happy here, I have to say. 
Uh, I came here really because my bishop asked me, would I take on a parish in Wolverhampton? So how long have you been here? I've been here eight years. Eight years. So I I imagine a number of your listeners perhaps may recognise my voice. So I am a native of Ireland, uh, born and brought up in County Sligo, which is on the North Atlantic seaboard. I went to school in Ireland and then after university, again in Dublin, I was very fortunate in receiving a scholarship to one of the most distinguished universities in the world, namely Louvain, which is in Belgium and is situated just uh, quite near Brussels, in fact. And I did further studies there in medieval history. And having qualified there, I was again very fortunate, really, that I got uh, a good job working for the European Commission. It was then known as the European Commission. It's now more the European Union. But I worked as an interpreter for seven years from French and Dutch into English for the European Union. Uh, that may that work may interest your so listeners at a little later this stage. This is before you were a priest. Yes, and then I happened to have met uh, the then Archbishop of Birmingham, Archbishop Maurice Couve de Merville, who invited me, having been introduced to me and met me, to consider becoming a priest. So how and old were you at this stage? I was at that stage 35. 35. So I was ordained to the priesthood at the age of 39 and 11 months, so... My 40th year uh, commenced with me being a curate in St. Chad's Cathedral, Birmingham, where I spent uh, the next eight years of my life, two of them as curate and six of them as administrator of the cathedral. And then in the spring of 1999, uh, Archbishop Morris Couve de Merville, who was still then Archbishop of Birmingham, sent me to St. Peter and Paul's, Wolverhampton, and that is my link with the town of Wolverhampton. So what was the key turning point that turned you from being a translator to to, to a priest? Was it an individual or, or Well, experience? I think that most, to some extent, yes. Most Irish boys of my age, I dare say, have all toyed with the idea of becoming priests. So it's not unusual for somebody brought up in that very intense hothouse of religious enthusiasm, which was the Ireland of the 1950s, Uh, to think of the priesthood. The 60s was as turbulent a time in Ireland as anywhere else, and I left school in 1968, which couldn't have been a worse year from the point of view of the world changing and really student revolutions taking all the great universities of Europe by storm. So much so that, in fact, the radical French young people were then known as les 68 tards, the 1968 people, who are now all cruising gently into their 60s, of course. (laughs) And so I uh, pursued my university studies and And I think... What what did you do at university? Well, I I did history and philosophy in Dublin and then I did medieval history in Louvain and uh, subsequently, of course, in my training for the priesthood, studied theology. But I think I'd reached a stage in my mid-30s where I was seriously wondering what direction is my life taking. God has given me a certain number of talents, however limited they are, and I felt I wasn't really putting them into practice as best I could. You know, I wasn't really using the gifts I'd been given to the best possible advantage. And because I imagine of my particular Catholic faith and my religious background I thought of the priesthood as the most natural channel for the 
use of, of, of these gifts for the honor and glory of God, obviously, but also that it would have a knock-on beneficial effect on other people. Mm-hmm. And so that is as succinctly as I can manage to explain the genesis of my vocation to the priesthood. And was there any individual that was quite inspirational to you in this? Well, I would say that having challenged me to become a priest, Archbishop Maurice Couve de Merville has always been a very great uh, figure of inspiration in my life. And I was privileged subsequently to work very closely with him. And uh, so I would say that he is probably the priest who most inspired me to myself see through my vocation. Obviously, my parents had given me the Catholic faith and their uh, their religious devotion. They were daily mass goers all their lives. It was bound to have had an effect on me. And so I would say that probably a combination of my parents throughout my life and then the coincidence of my having met Archbishop Maurice Couve de Merville, if you want to individualize the whys and the wherefores, they would be the key figures. And was there to some extent a disillusionment with the life you were leading prior? No, I would say quite honestly that that there was a slight emptiness in it, if you like, but I never regret, I'm a bit like Edith Piaf, that I regret nothing, <laughs> je ne regret rien. <coughs> and I don't regret the friendships I had, the experiences I had, the work I did, and I would sincerely hope that all of these things have combined to make me maybe a better human being now, more in touch with the problems, the challenges being faced by the people who turn to me for support. And so I wouldn't say that I found at any stage that my life was empty, but I did wonder whether I was still actually responding as positively as I could to the talents I'd been given. And that would be it more, see it more positively than negatively. So on, on a personal political level, yes. a slightly different question. Having worked for the EU, are you are you a big fan of the EU? <coughs> yes, I, I, I have to say I am um, an unashamed apologist for the European Union and the European ideal. I think, first of all, partly because maybe I am Irish and secondly because the most important cultural forces which shaped my character are continental European. I have a great love for European languages and... My experience on the continent, both its art, its culture, its people, have all combined to make of me very much a European citizen. So you, you mentioned, uh, well, let me just ask you a question. I, I'm very interested, as a Catholic priest now, uh, any religion really, hmm. do you sense there's a very strong anti-religious movement at the moment? I'm talking particularly about, say, the Richard Dawkins book, and also the Christopher Hitchens one, which is called God is Not Good, I think. Uh, what, what do you feel about that? And have you read those books? Well, the answer uh, to your second question is no. I have read a number of reviews of the books. I would think that English culture generally is not militantly anti-religious in the way that continental culture has been on many occasions in the past. I think the English are profoundly pragmatic. They are a people whose intellectual views have been very much shaped by the Protestant Reformation. 
the idea which I believe they have very much taken over from Luther is the idea of private judgment. And that notion has filtered into the secular world in that the English intellectual tradition is to allow every person to make up his own mind, which means that there's a certain relativism in it all. Richard Dawkins is entitled to express his views, uh, but then so am I, and public broadcasting generally, and now you, I'm very happy to say, are very fair-minded and open in the way in which they do allow people with moderate religious views to express their views, as well as allow those who disagree with them to air theirs. That, that, I find that that's an interesting point, because I know quite... Uh, I'm married into a, a Catholic family, and I know a lot of them consider the media to be particularly anti-Catholic, and almost very strongly anti-Catholic. Mm. Uh, do you not find that at all? Well, I think that one has to distinguish a little between the institutional church at a particular stage in its history and the Catholic Church in England and Wales, for reasons we don't need to recall at the moment, has gone through a troubled period over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And a vigilant media, I think, again, understandably, has perhaps reacted and maybe reacted a little bit over the odds. Specifically because it's the Catholic Church, because I agree, it has been a turbulent time over, say, the last 25 years, and we all know what we're mm. talking about. But those problems have actually been fairly uh, structural in, in every sphere of society. Mm. And it has been slightly unfair of, say, the broadcasters to pick out one particular group, say, the Catholic Church, and say, mm. look at this lot. Well, the Catholic Church has always adopted a very high profile. And perhaps it has, in a sense, made itself an easy target. But I would say to balance the picture a little, that the very positive way in which the death of Pope John Paul II and his reputation was handled by, for example, the BBC mm. and the other media, as well as the very open, I think, and again nuanced, but I would say, generally speaking, benign way in which the media have treated the new Pope, Benedict XVI, are signs that there is a fair-mindedness in even in the English media. <laughs> you know, no, I think that that has to be said fairly, that there is a balanced approach. There is an attempt to see both sides of the picture. And although many people have cried foul from the Catholic camp in recent years about media treatment, it is my considered view, and again, here I am, an outsider to some extent, you'll have guessed because of my accent, but I am a very committed Catholic, and of course I am a priest, so I work within the system. I would say that the way in which, particularly the death of John Paul II, the analysis of his reputation, the fair-minded way in which his role on the global scene was analysed and appreciated in the English media, is a sign that in spite of what has been a rather fractious period, that the overall judgment has to be positive. Moreover, I think if you compare the amount of media time devoted to religious broadcasting in this country 
with, say, France or Germany, you will find that the English media do give more airtime to religious broadcasting, however widely you wish to interpret that, mm -hmm. than many continental uh, broadcasters do. Mm -hmm. So you lived in Belgium for quite a while. I so did, did you yes. live in Holland as well? I haven't said that you did Dutch. Well, I, Dutch is in fact Flemish is the language of the majority of Belgians. Six mm -hmm. million speak Flemish, four million speak French, and Flemish is in fact a dialect of Dutch. It is the Dutch language, except with a different accent and a slightly different vocabulary, rather similar to the English spoken in Ireland and the English spoken in England. I mm -hmm. think you will agree that it is the same language. We understand one another, but we sometimes use slightly different words or we mm -hmm. have a very different and recognizably different accent. So that's the case with Flemish. And I lived in the Flemish part. I was at the Louvain University, which is in Flanders. And uh, that explains really my link with Belgium. And do you go back there and do you have a great affection for Belgium? I have an enormous affection for Belgium. Many of my closest friends are Belgian and I've kept in close touch with them over the years. Many of them have come to visit me here. And the answer to that question is yes. Because I, I, I think it's very interesting because I went to Holland last year and I went to a lot of the churches and uh, mainly the Protestant churches, which is what there primarily is in Holland. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I was struck in a way that uh, not being a religious person, I wasn't brought up religious at all. In fact, I went to a Baptist school, so, you know, you could make of that what you will. <laughs> but it, I, I, I was amazed at the degree to which of the, the, the plain white walls compared to the, the grandeur of the Catholic churches. And I hadn't really appreciated or grasped that difference. And well, almost, almost a kind of visual antagonism between the two as well. Well, the Reformation hit the Netherlands very hard in the sense that the Netherlands, the Dutch, have always been a very religious people. And in fact, in pure numerical terms, Catholics now outnumber Protestants in the Netherlands. But the Netherlands does remain a Protestant and Reformed country. They introduced Calvinism in the early 17th century. And many of the churches, which of course are made famous by the Dutch artists, the interiors of which you find in virtually every art gallery in Europe are very sober because iconoclasm was part of their approach. They uh, destroyed the statues, many of the pictures, many of the graven images of the Catholic tradition. So no more than you had in England, too, at certain stages in the Reformation, you had savage attacks on statues, such as at Lichfield Cathedral at the time of the Puritans. So in the Netherlands, it was a very radical uh, clean-out of the churches, and the Calvinist spirit was one of immense purity, sobriety, uh, concentration on the word of God, on the sermon. That's why the pulpit is absolutely focal in the Calvinist churches of the Netherlands. And so, if you like, the sobriety and the overall starkness of the Protestant church buildings in the Netherlands is an articulation of that very Puritan reformed spirit which those who embrace the Calvinist Reformation uh, hold dear. <laughs> Coming over onto the issue of, say, disability, 
in the Catholic Church. What, what, what's the kind of overview of, say, disability? What, why are disabled people impaired in the eyes of the Catholic Church? Now, there's a difficult question. That is a, a question that takes me a little by surprise, but I'll do my best <laughs> to answer it. I think it's important for all people to appreciate that they are God cre God's creatures, everybody mm -hmm. fashioned in his image and likeness. And unfortunately, not everybody enters into life with the same chance. I appreciate that. There can be physical disability, there can be mental disability, and of course, there can be also disabilities inflicted by circumstance. And I would sincerely hope as a priest, and I can't speak for the whole church in this, but I would sincerely hope that we do everything we can to, first of all, make those who are physically disabled as welcome and as cherished uh, as anybody else. And we translate that desire into practice by providing as many facilities as we can, by observing the legislation insofar as we can, and by shaping the liturgy such as to include on a basis of complete equality with sensitivity to difficulties they may have anybody who suffers from a physical or other disability i hope that that has maybe partly answered your question well, yeah it's slightly uh, uh, but let's get let's get a little bit deep because i i, I think uh, obviously this is a disability show and i think disability is very interesting in relation to the church, for example, I remember when I, I was writing about different things in, in cinema, I came across the notion of the, the list of Leviticus, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you're mm. very au fait with. And, and, <laughs> and it used to be that you couldn't be a priest if you had certain impairments. Mm. And, and that changed when? Do you know Second Vatican Council or something? Well, I think that... Um... <clears throat> And this is interesting. It's not a catch out. It's just because I think it's it's fascinating stuff. Yes, I I I think that clearly the bigger picture, and I I will admit, of course, that for roughly two thousand years, the church defined the parameters of public debate on all sorts of issues. I think you'd probably agree with that. That mm -hmm. up until the French Revolution, certainly this was the case, and the Christian anthropology would have been a defining factor in our general understanding of all sorts of illnesses and disabilities, not least illnesses of the mind. Now, the idea of the perfect human body, of course, we find in Greek mythology, we find in Roman history, and it certainly would have been one which the Christians would have taken over from the secular society in which they lived, as well as from the Jewish tradition. Now, the list in Leviticus is not one I have read with any great regularity, so you, you, you're, you will trick me out if you ask me any details. But there is an idea that in order to serve God, uh, one has to be in the full possession of one's faculties. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, for a long, long time, physical ailments, whether it be blindness, whether it be a physical disability of any kind, has been the object of a stigma, and unfairly so. Mm -hmm. The question arises as to then whether or not somebody who is disabled should be excluded from the priesthood 
and I certainly think that there would be no fundamental reason for doing so, but a priest, in order to carry out his work, as distinct from fulfilling his purely liturgical ceremonial role, does need to be, I would say, physically able. Mm. And but you mean that on a more practical level rather than Yes, I do mean on a more practical level. I think on a philosophical level that that was a reflection of the prevailing ideas of the times, and I would say an unfair one. I do know that my Archbishop Couve de Merville, whom I mentioned to you before, has ordained to the priesthood uh, a young man who suffered from fairly severe disability, mm -hmm. and that young man with a specially designed motor car is ministering to a parish, is running a parish in the Birmingham Diocese, and I have every reason to believe running it extremely successfully with an enormous amount of help from the people mm. who are happy to be served by somebody who mm. is technically disabled. Yeah, I've always been particularly fascinated by, by the Catholic Church having married into it, mm. and my in-laws were quite uh, uh, dedicated, kind of lay readers on a Sunday and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I've always found it to be quite a contradiction, the mm. Catholic Church, in its, in its relationship to disability. In that, for example, on the one hand, it's, it's against the... It's anti-abortion, which in, in, to some extent is very pro-disability. It, it, it treats all fetuses with absolute equality in relation to life. Mm. But then, on the other hand, it, it has a great belief in that notion of charity, of doing stuff for a group that often stigmatises them in the mm. process of that notion of charity. Mm. Uh, and it, it's not quite managed to get over that that often contradiction. So it says these people are absolutely equal mm. in, in, in conception. Mm -hmm. But once you're born, you move into a kind of stigmatised life as objects of charity rather than as objects of equality. Well, it's a big question I think you've raised, and I'll do my best to answer it while admitting that maybe it, not, it may not satisfy you or your, re your listeners. I think that the Catholic Church has actually a rather good record of care for those who are born disabled. I remember so many children's homes, institutions which looked after Down syndrome children, uh, the most progressive children's hospitals in Ireland, for example, who did some spectacular work for children who were born with disability are all run by the Catholic Church and with sisters, for example, and medical staff as well, who were very dedicated to a an all-embracing and I think profoundly human vision of disability and its treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that the issue of abortion, for example, in the United Kingdom is a very difficult one, not least because, of course, of the enormous developments in the area of medicine, so that any discussion of it does become medically very complicated and therefore beyond my specific competence, I uh, would say. Well, yes and no. I think, I, think it's, it, I think it's a mistake to let medicine away with it that easy, actually, and I think in the end it is a moral question. Whatever one chooses which side, mm. I think I would argue the medicine's irrelevant. 
and both the technological advances are irrelevant and it is purely a moral decision and I, I think that's quite interesting that you've said that because I find that fascinating because in a way you've let medicine off and I don't think you should for one second <laughs> well medi medicine would say that uh, I presume doctors would say that they have taken the Hippocratic Oath which the way I understand it is a pro-life oath mm -hmm. and I imagine again that decisions on abortion mm. are taken with precedence given to the life happiness and psychological a well-being of the mother rather than primarily of the uh, fetus which is becoming a child but I, I, I really feel uncomfortable speaking for them I'm just trying to understand their way of mm. arguing the toss on this issue mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no because I think again disability is is it's where it, it becomes a key issue in in one's morality, one's worldview, one's daily behaviour, mm -hmm. when it, the surface uh, views of an individual are taken away, mm. be it even so like, for example, the attacks on religion by, say, the likes of the rationalists like Richard Dawkins or mm. Christopher Hitchens, often are very supportive of, of medicine and those kind of technologies. Mm. And they ignore the often absolute destructive nature of those practices. So, for example, in relation to my impairment, spina mm. bifida, I think the termination rate is between 90 and 95 percent. Mm -hmm. Down syndrome it is a massive figure in relation to conceptions and abortions. Mm. And those rationalists ignore that. And I think it, it's a very positive thing about the Catholic Church mm. that it does make it, and it's one of the few that does make a moral stand on that. Well, I mean, obviously it makes me very happy that you feel comfortable with the approach and supported by the approach taken by the church because your take on this issue is bound to be very different to mine. And it's clearly at the center of your interests, whereas it is one among others in my uh, global approach to my parish family. And... I just have to just uh, recognize that the views that you have expressed so cogently on this matter, and I'm very pleased that you should have that experience. That's all I can say. Mm. Mm. Well, I've had an email that wants to know which football team you support. <laughs> well, I think... I have to say I support Wolves. <laughs> but I suspect you're not much of a sports fan, is that right? The only sport I really enjoy watching is tennis. I do love watching tennis, so Wimbledon fortnight I spend more time watching television. But I really would love to see Wolves do well. And I have a slightly venal uh, interest, namely when there's a Wolves match on a Saturday afternoon and it ends well... <laughs> my Sunday collection goes up a little. <laughs> and another email wants to know, what is your favourite cultural aspect of Catholicism? Oh, well, that is, a, that is a very interesting one because I probably came to my love for the church through its music. I do love so many different forms of uh, the church's music. I love hymnody. 
I love the Victorian hymn tradition here in England. Explain what hymnody is. Well, hymns, just the the collection of hymns that Mm -hmm. we have uh, that are as true and indeed perhaps more popular in the Protestant tradition than in the Catholic one. I love Gregorian chant, which is the ancient uh, psalm chants of the Christian church, which is used both at the Eucharist as well as at morning and evening prayer uh, in Latin. I also love uh, the cantatas of Johann Sebastian Bach, particularly. I'm trying to work my way systematically through listening to them all. And I particularly enjoy when at Sunday Mass the congregations sing. And I would say that perhaps music more than anything else gives my soul a lift and that that is the cultural dimension of the church's life that impacts most on me. So what, moving on slightly to kind of more broader political issues, how, how would you say contemporary politics is affecting your practice? So, for example, I know that the notion of adoption in the Catholic Church is, is having to change quite radically, yes. <laughs> and, and so what, what's your take on that? Well, I would say that a lot of the ideological conflict has been drained away from the political debate at the present time because the left and the right are very close, aren't they? Mm -hmm. That's partly because the traditional left has moved very much to the right in the global economy and the right has simply, because the Cold War the, 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 the very clear defining categories of the Cold War have been wiped off the map, that, uh, again, the ideological conflict at the heart of so much politics for so much of the 20th century has disappeared. So that politics is a very different game to what it was, let's say, even a quarter century ago. Now, a lot of issues uh, are come to the fore from time to time, and you mentioned one particular one, and I think I know the debate to which you're referring. And many of these issues are corollaries to other developments in society. So, for example, the civil, civil contract for homosexual couples has had the knock-on effect of making adoption an issue which it mightn't have been a number of years ago. I have no specific personal take on many of these issues. I think I do try and listen to and defend and support the considered views of the Catholic Church. I am a Catholic priest and my primary duty is to the people who are committed to my care and I also have a duty to the Church to represent as faithfully as I possibly can in my own any public pronouncements I make, uh, her teaching. Mm-hmm. Is that fairly clear? Yep, yep, yep. So uh, another another email, which I presume is quite humorous, he says, am I off to hell as an ex-Catholic? <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not. Is that not. because there's still hope for him? Well, there, there's partly that. Some of the most spectacular moments in the Church's history have been deathbed confessions. <laughs> But I think somebody who is an ex-Catholic 
the 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 left-wing American writer Mary McCarthy, who reached certain notoriety during the Vietnam War. Uh, I think she wrote a book called Always a Catholic. And there is something of that. I think your your correspondent, deep within himself, he recognizes that a lot of his culture, a lot of his view on life has been shaped, or perhaps misshapen too, by his experience as a Catholic. I would think more seriously, though, that God's love for each and every one of us reaches ultimately beyond the confessional divide. I think that your correspondent is certainly cherished by, by Almighty God, who doesn't want any of us to go to hell. Uh, hell is a place into which we ultimately put ourselves. Mm. Well, change, changing again, yeah. changing tax slightly. Sure. Living, given that you, you, you live and work in, in the very multicultural city that is Wolverhampton, mm-hmm. yes. uh, a couple of questions. The, the, the kind of problems that are seen culturally, say, with Islam at the moment mm. in, in, in the media, by and large, because I suspect on, on the ground it's quite different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what kind of multi-faith work are you doing? Well, first of all, uh, we are doing a lot of ecumenical work at the centre of Wolverhampton. So, for example, every two weeks, myself and the rector of Wolverhampton, the Reverend David Frith, and the Methodist minister, the Reverend Tony Kinch, we meet for coffee at Costa in Queen Square. And we chew the cud, but we also discuss matters of mutual interest to our congregations. And through this contact, we all have our fingers on one another's pulse, so to speak. We know what's going on. And we also have an association, a more formal structure called City Centre Churches Engaged, where all of us get together, liaising very, very closely with the City Council, to see what are the ongoing social issues, as well as the perhaps new social issues which arrive in Wolverhampton and which we as a church body, can either feed into, work with, or inform the council as to how these things can be dealt with. So there's obviously the ongoing problem of drug abuse among young people in the city. There is also the work of uh, looking after the poor, the Good Shepherd Brothers who work from Methodist Church in uh, School Street, uh, distribute something in the order of 200 food packages every afternoon of the week, All Nations Church has its soup kitchen. So on that level, the churches are working together in their ministry to the whole community. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly, you have focused on a very important part of the character of this city, namely its multicultural uh, and pluralist character. We have a substantial uh, Muslim community. We also have uh, Sikh and Hindu, as well as people like your correspondent who are ex-something or other, mm-hmm. but are still citizens and concerned about the general well-being of the city. Again, I, there is a structure, a formal structure, for inter-religious dialogue. But I would say that in my experience, community relations in the city are good, mm-hmm. that there is a general tolerance of one another and that the type of hysteria whipped up in the media is not something I have 
experience as impacting on human energy relations, at least where I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. So what do you do for fun? Oh, well, uh, thank goodness I'm blessed with a good sense of humor. I read a lot. So I I am a keen reader of both uh, serious literature as well as fiction. Uh, I share with you, I share with you a great love for American novels. So I think I, in another context, I persuaded you to read the writings of Philip Roth. Mm. So I've managed to clock up seven of his novels in the space of the past 12 months. So I'm feeling pleased about that, especially as they're quite long and challenging. I don't go to the cinema as much as perhaps I ought. I love listening to music and I, one of the things which I enjoy doing, although it's a slight chore, is I keep up a lot of correspondence. Not so much emails, but I write quite a lot of letters. Mm -hmm. And I love a day at the beach. I am very, very fond of Aberdovey, which is Wolverhampton-on-Sea. And I do go there. I'm sure that's a good thing. (laughs) It is. It's a very good thing. I love swimming, and uh, it's something which, during both in the winter and in the summer, uh, I do love a day out on the seashore. And so do you go swimming in Wolverhampton? I do, yes. There's a, a very nice central baths in Wolverhampton. And I also play squash about once a week. Mm-hmm. And do you play tennis? Uh, I haven't played tennis for a long, long time. But squash is kind of tennis for a busy man, isn't it? It <laughs> only lasts 40 minutes and you perspire a lot and it's great exercise and I really do enjoy it. <laughs> I'm not all that good at it, but I really enjoy it, yes. So what what happens next in your career? Will you get a transfer? Do you ask for one? Do you want to go somewhere? Well, I would like to say career is not the right word. I think that... uh, Vocation. Yeah, I think that that's a better way of expressing it. I am absolutely committed to my parish community here in Wolverhampton as long as the Archbishop of Birmingham asks me to stay. So I have no plans to leave. I, I dread the prospect of furniture removals, vans coming up the avenue and taking me off somewhere else but there is a probability or a possibility at least that the archbishop may phone me and ask me would I be willing to take on some other job or go to another parish and would that just on a practical level on on how the kind of system works would that fundamentally be within the kind of Birmingham diocese kind of area yes it would be within the Birmingham diocese unless I were to be transferred to higher things elsewhere, which is extremely unlikely. And and could a priest request that, or does he get...? Well, generally speaking, priests are obedient men, and they do what the bishop requests of them. If clearly he asked a priest to do something which the priest in all honesty felt he wasn't capable of, then the archbishop, if he were a sensible man, would uh, perhaps ask somebody else to do it. So there is there is a certain amount of honest dialogue, but ultimately Catholic priests are, I don't say submissive men, but I would use the term obedient, and they look at the bigger picture, the greater good of the diocese, and they trust the judgment of the archbishop in his decision or his request to you to do a particular work or fulfill a particular task. But at this moment, I would insist that I am parish priest here, and I'm very, very fortunate with the makeup of my parish family. I hope they feel that their priest looks after them reasonably well. 
Uh, and well, I, I won't also, do. I won't do a poll on that. Right? Oh no, please, no, no, don't, no. But uh, and I also, as you mentioned very early on, that I was involved with St Edmund's Catholic School, and that's also an aspect of my work which I greatly enjoy. But you must have ambitions. What's your ambition? Well, my ambition is. I, sorry if this sounds awfully like a cop out. <laughs> my ambition is to do what I think is Almighty God's will. Uh, namely, my primary ambition, I think, is to do the work of the church, to preach the gospel, to minister to the people who have been conferred to my care in the Lord's name, faithful to the traditions of the Catholic Church. And that that is my ambition. Uh, you know, that's it. Do you go home much? Home meaning Ireland. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, my, my, my parents are no longer uh, here. Uh, I lost them about seven years ago, and uh, my one and only brother lives in the United States. But I still have family in Ireland. I have very close friends there, and I go over about twice a year for a couple of days. It's something I enjoy because it is home. It remains always home, and... I come back energized from the experience, and my answer is yes, I, I, I am proud to be Irish. I think that the Catholic community in this country owes my country an enormous amount in terms of dedicated service of countless generations of Irish men and women, and that, yeah, I, I, I'm proud to be Irish, yeah. And it, does that help you? Because. Uh from my perception, and again, this may not be true, uh, are a lot of your parishioners from Irish Catholic backgrounds? Yes, yes. Wolverhampton had a very high level of Catholic immigration, of Irish immigration rather than Catholic immigration in days gone by. Many of the Catholic people of Wolverhampton are of Irish origin, either born in Ireland or second generation, but many also are, of course, of Italian origin, Many are very proud to be uh, long, long-time natives of this country. And now we are getting quite a number of uh, African Catholics coming to my parish church in any case. And there is a considerable Polish migration into this area, as well as a very high number of practicing Catholic Polish students at Wolverhampton University and I'm very privileged to be their chaplain as well and I enjoy enormously my contact with them and have been greatly enriched by their presence and their involvement and their very active involvement in my parish community. And so how much opportunity do you get to practice your French and Dutch, Flemish? Uh, well, <laughs> I most of it is over the telephone but a uh, Quite frequently, French students turn up and I speak to them and enjoy doing that. I wouldn't say I get as many opportunities as I might desire, but they tell me my French and my Dutch haven't become rusty, so I have to believe them. <laughs> so we're running out of time, but there's, you've got something happening in September, yes? A Mass on the 25th of September. Yes, yes. Uh, each year we organise a Mass for the sick and the housebound, as well as those who are disabled. And we then have a tea party after it. 
And so give us the date again. The date is the 25th of September. It's the third Sunday in September. And the place? The place is St Peter and Paul's Catholic Church, North Street, Wolverhampton. Thank you, Father Patrick Daly. And thank you very much for a very enjoyable hour.